0: back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, Jim Rooney. This is Toe the Rubber. Episode 319 on the network. Had a full day yesterday. A double dip with Larry Boa came on early and then we had coaching Kernan with our roundtable. A lot of interesting topics. I encourage you to go back and listen to it. And we got a full back end of the week, but getting us through the hump is Jim Rooney here today. Um, before we get to Jim and great, great topic, I hope you guys brought your notepads today. I know Will George is out there in the audience. He listens to every show, Jim. He, he writes all, everything down that you're saying. So you got a, you got a uh, big fan there with one of our other co-hosts. But uh, to our audience, 52,000-plus subscribers, 74 countries, grassroots to MLB front offices, thanks for your support. Make sure after this show you give Jim five stars, write some great comments, because we are battling the analytics of the podcast world just like they do in MLB. Uh, make sure that you let our newest uh, podcast streaming service, iHeartRadio, brought us into their fold a few weeks back. Let them know they made the right choice. Uh, make sure you download, listen, like, su- subscribe on whatever your, your preference is, but make sure you touch on iHeart as well. So with that, uh, Jim, welcome back to your show. Hello, Dave. How are you today? Yeah, doing great. I know we've got, uh, we've got force versus perceived velocity. Great topic. I'm excited about that um, as well. But you got some stuff you, you just got back from a big tournament, I think, last week, and I right? wanted to touch on some things. Yeah, um, well, the turn, tournament in general was uh, –
1: you know, it was pretty good as far as the kids have fun. And uh, believe it or not, the, the coach is starting to move the kids around the infield and people are getting a, a chance to play the infield and the outfield and nice, and they're learning and being developed. So uh, I think all in all, well, all the kids came back. Um, funny thing about that, just because mentally the kids are a little bit more excited, a little bit more focused. Uh, we have gone over in the past where, um, if you're in a good mood and you have a smile on your face, it's tough to then end up negative. And as, um, as the author of the book, Flow, once stated, um, besides being thoroughly engrossed in the activity, being focused, if you're receiving complete joy uh, and happiness from participating in activity, that joy and happiness will in- naturally increase your ability to focus. Um, so next thing you know, the kids are being moved around the field and on a whole for the weekend, they probably played their best defensive games all year because they're 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 involved. They're excited. They're enthusiastic. And uh, that, ca- that ends up
0: carrying them a long way. Oh, absolutely. And that's it's, these kids are young kids. I don't even care. I mean, teenage kids got to learn. They've got to learn every spot. High school kids have to learn every spot, even as you get into college. I mean, if you're fortunate enough to move on, at least learn a, an additional spot or be flexible there. But, you know, the, the whole joy thing gets lost, I think, in our youth sports. And, uh, you know, we're watching the playoffs now, seeing a lot of joy in Philly. I mean, that crowd's amazing, and the players are right into it. But um, I read an an article, and I'm not a neuroscientist, but uh, the study shows that you're 33% smarter when you smile, and something simple like that. So I'm glad that that team is, is doing that, and I encourage all the teams out there listening, forget about your win and loss record. Make it about development. Make it about competition. Uh, make it about preparation. And these kids, these kids will have fun. They'll enjoy it. They'll play longer and they'll pass on that positivity to their kids someday. Yes, exactly. So Dave, before I get
1: into the uh, force velocity versus perceived velocity, um, one one thought came up during the week with me uh, that kind of hits back to last episode, last podcast. And um, we spoke about the closed chain kinetic exercise and different things. A simplified thought process for that is that young athletes should be working on their prime movers, the large muscles in their body that move the levers. We go back to Sandy Koufax's biography when Justin Orendolf read it and he said, It's the first time I ever heard somebody discuss pitching is about the levers being in the proper places, pitching is about the correct movement patterns of the levers. So it's the prime movers in our body. that move the levers. So we should work on the prime movers. So we I mean, it's the individual muscle groups, the deltoid, the bicep, the tricep, the chest, the back muscles, the, you know, from the trapezius to the rhomboids, to the um, all the large prime movers, you know, in your lower body, um, you know, your butt muscles, your quadriceps, your hamstrings, your calf muscles. So if we look at them as the prime movers, then we realize we have to work on them first. And then after that, we move into what I call the secondary movers or the muscles that assist in the stabilization. Because in this conversation, we're we're talking about 10, 11, 12-year-old kids. So the prime movers are essential that they have to move the levers in the right spot we're not talking about a, lo- a large workload for these ball players. Hopefully, not um, that they're not playing year round and they're not being <clears throat> overused. And then the secondary assist muscles, which are going to be activated when you're doing prime mover, closed chain kinetic exercise, we then can focus on the different stabilization type exercises to enhance the future workload and the future, future stresses the player is going to you know, come about. Um, so I just I just wanted to kind of reiterate that so that it was explained a little bit I, I guess uh, better than some of the some of the concepts and words that we used last week. Um,
0: and I think that's good. And are you seeing out there? Are you seeing? I know you you bring things up for a reason because you're you've been in and around the game at the highest levels. Now you're at the grassroots level, and you've seen it at the ten thousand foot view as well as you're you're right down in the trenches solving the problems now. Have you seen it done in reverse? Have you seen it neglected? Are, are people ignorant to those those concepts that you just brought up?
1: Well, it's it's the usual thing where we've start tra- we start train. We think that we're going to start training ten years old, little league age kids, as if a a college or a professional baseball player should be trained. Who's you know a man or close Got to it, man. Um, so yeah, you see you see a lot of emphasis on rotator cuff work, on scap stability. On uh, crossover symmetry, these are all advanced exercises that are that should be used for um, players that are you know closer to their full maturation. Um, as I said uh, previously, we spoke about the old strength coach for the New York Giants, Johnny Parker, and a conversation I had with him about um, rotator cuff or glenoid labrum injuries in his offenses and defensive linemen. Because he used to run a split push pull a push-pull system of, uh, of workout schedules and weekly workout. And he said, How do you know that? How'd you see that? Uh, you're, you're a thousand times correct because I just had to revamp our whole training module. I had four offensive linemen along our depth chart have to go in for shoulder surgery this offseason. It's because all those stabilization assist muscles are being activated when you're doing the closed-chain kinetic work. So if you don't learn to squat properly, then those assistant muscles are going to be overtaxed. The movement patterns are come from the prime movers. That's why we use the term prime mover. That's what moves the levers into the proper position. The assistance muscles stabilize the joint. So for the most part, I have not come across a 10-year-old playing in rec ball or even travel ball that is one creating enough force to overtax those stabilizers to where we have to say, put more money in the bank and do more of those type of exercises at the loss of time for doing the primary, you know, primary movers. Um, so yes, I do see that because while i don't mind some of the tubing exercises and the wrist weights or light dumbbells being used as a warm up or a cool down they shouldn't in my opinion at that age be part of the normal um, workout routine you know if if we're going to say you know to where we go to the gym or we're doing exercises or we're doing we should stick to the uh, closed chain kinetic exercises that work the prime movers that place the levers in the proper position, and we should learn to move properly and then
0: advance from there. Yeah. Now, I'll, I'll use my two kids as an example, actually all four of ours. None of my kids lift. Uh, we have a, a ninth grader and eighth grader, and our daughters are younger. They do all, not, not to say they don't do exercise, but all the stuff that they do is mobility in terms of making sure their body's strong. In the right ways, these things we used to do in gym class way back then—animal walks, Um, they do, uh, they do pressing, they do chin-ups, lots of stuff for their hips, uh, mobility in their ankles and feet. And I don't do any of this stuff with them yet, and and maybe I'm holding them back. I don't know. But uh, my, my biggest concern with them is getting strong in whatever activities they're doing naturally, and then making sure their bodies are in the right position and the right structure to do those things properly, and then. I'm, I'm kind of wait and see type of thing with. Well, eventually, they will because I'm I'm a product of that. I once I started working out heavily later later in life, directed and, and guided, um, I saw that I saw my athleticism take another step and my skill take another step. But uh, I'm I'm a little of those. Let's take our time with it with type of stuff. Where I think you're saying a lot of parents are jumping in. You know, it's like a ready fire aim thing. Let's get them in quick and you know see what happens. Yes, and they're
1: getting them in quick working spending more time working their stabilizer assistant muscles than they are the prime movers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's uh yeah. So I'm, I'm I'll, I'll wait for you to give me the go ahead on when to start firing with those guys um, on that stuff. But I'm, I'm still a ways away. I like what's going on with it. I, I mentioned before the show, I'll give my older boy a shot. I know I talk about Tanner a lot, uh, hit his third homer the other night in a short season fall league and big game tonight um, for their championship. But uh, real, real, real proud of the reason he's playing. I mentioned it to you before the show. Uh, you know, he, he's a switch batter, uh, hit mostly left-handed from last March, all the way through the beginning of the, the end of the fall, beginning of the end of summer, beginning of fall decided he needed 30, 35 more at bats, uh, right-handed. So it's, uh, f- fun to watch fun that it's his decision. Cause I was perfectly content with letting him stop and, and take a rest. But, uh, we got that game tonight here. Thank God for the nice weather in the South because I hear it's getting cold up North watching those Philly games. But uh, I digress there. Let's get to our main topic.
1: Well, getting cold in the North. It's been in the 40s each morning here in the Charlotte area.
0: <laughs> oh, really? oh, I'm uh, I'm just a tad further South than you. And it's been mid to high 60s and I'm sitting out right now. I changed my venue. Usually I, I've got a small space in the house, but we've got a nice Carolina room in the back of the house that's uh, screened, screened in and gets a chance to see the, the trees and the water and stuff like that. So it's, it's made me... You talked about Seamus's group being happier moving around. I moved around a little bit and I, I feel a little happier doing the podcast out here. That's awesome. That means you'll be quite focused. <laughs> <laughs> possibly. Possibly. That's if my neighbor doesn't start mowing his lawn again. Exactly. Well, the thing that's popped up um,
1: and I, I was a little... Shocked and overwhelmed. Uh, we're getting some feedback from up north when we, we announced the project, the Pitching Kinetics Project in North New Jersey near Don Bosco Prep High School. And uh, it's, it's taking shape and they're getting ready to go and things are all moving in a positive direction. And uh, obviously because of the reputation of the people up there, including my brother, the head coach at Don Bosco Prep, and uh, our guest, couple of weeks ago, Vinny Perez.
0: Oh, yeah. Ooh, Jim Cott spoke very very highly of. He worked with Jim as he talked about us before the show. And uh, Jim brought his name up without being prompted and uh, spoke very highly of the work he does. And I mean, that's a Hall of Fame pitcher. Um, yes.
1: Yes. That is awesome. Yes. Vinny is, uh, is spectacular. In fact,
0: not that I have a lot of
1: downtime, but uh, the thought popped on my head, uh, I got to get with Vinny and we're going to, we're going to write a book. Let's see if we can put something together. I know he has a busy schedule. I have a busy schedule, but, uh, just some of the information that was shared simply on that podcast, I think even has to be broadcasted over and people have an opportunity to learn from that type of experience. Um, but what had happened is, so I get contacted by my brother the other day and he says, uh, Jim, I got a question for you. Um, to be honest with you, I would rather some of the people that are contacting us, I would rather tell them, uh, no, we can't help you. But I know that's not necessarily the, the, the correct uh, course of action. But there's a lot of people and their initial questions about information for the program is how much Faster is my son gonna throw? Oh boy, wrong question. When exactly. When when are we gonna have an increase in velocity? What's the time schedule for when he can throw 90 degrees? I mean, this is how people nowadays in our current baseball market have been brainwashed. And on one end, your initial reaction is Okay, we're we're not going to be able to help that that young man. But in the initial, you know, request for information, you don't necessarily know if that's driven by the parent or driven by the young young kid. You don't even know if you maybe you might have the ability within one time of meeting the young pitcher to uh convince them that this is what our goal is here and this is how things are gonna improve. So it's tough by the actions of the adults in the room to then filter out people and say, no, we can't help them. Um, So, but the thing is, is what type of information can we get to them to maybe enlighten them on the path of this is what should be done instead of moving over to the dark side, as we call it for the sellout for velocity. So, What I do when I meet with different individuals, especially initially, and sometimes that question does pop up. I had one father come in and his son is a a pretty good pitcher, 12 years old on one of the local travel teams. I have worked with uh, quite a few kids from that travel team. So the dad received my name as as a reference and he made contact with me and I took him through the paces and I taught him some of the things that we're going to do. And I evaluated how he threw. Uh, And these were things that needed to be accomplished. And at the end of the session, as if the dad hadn't paid any attention to anything that I explained to him, he said, when will he um, start throwing harder? Like he's got to throw four to six miles an hour faster. And I said, well, sir, that's, um... and, and I'll be honest, the, the question took me a little off guard because everything up to that point had been so positive with the input from both the son and, and the dad that I didn't necessarily have anything prepared or or discussed because this is the first time it had it popped up. Um, so I simply stated that to the father that, That's not the initial goal. Here's the things, what we're working on, the efficiency, the proper movement patterns, throwing the ball correctly, the force that we create, we're going to get a larger percentage to the baseball. So there's going to be, as we progress, the progression is going to result in positive upticks in velocity and command and control and ability to repeat your delivery and to do it in long-term health. And... Long story short, never saw the son again and never heard from the dad.
0: Uh, I'll tell you how I hear how I deal with them. I'll give you a, that way if you're not prepared next time with somebody like that, because you never go in thinking that way because you think they're paying attention. I learned this from a hostage negotiator. So that's how deep seated the parents are with, with this. You're, 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 you're comparing how to deal with a hostage taker. They say, uh, when is my son going to throw four to six miles an hour faster? All you do is repeat the last three words, four to six miles an hour faster. And he'll eventually he'll talk himself into a tizzy where he either wears out and buys into what you're doing, or he'll convince himself that he sounds like a, a knucklehead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Takes a, take a while. Haring right. so parents like that, to hostage takers. That's uh, that's how far we've gone with youth <laughs> sports. <laughs>
1: In some instances, correct. I'm I'm, I'm holding yeah. out a little bit more hope to the majority of the other parents. Yeah.
0: Now that's the extreme. That's yes. The extreme. But um,
1: so, um. Over time, with discussions with parents, booth players, when you're going through different throwing programs, when we're discussing different aspects of their delivery, when they're up on the mound, doing some certain things, when I'm working with them to give them some verbal cues, some triggers to see if they work with producing the proper movement pattern and the proper feel, so over time, um, I started putting it in my own words and it and it related back to some instances that kind of enlightened me in my past. And that's where I came up with forced velocity versus perceived velocity. So a lot of this starts with um, the advancements, well they call them advancements, in the technology of radar guns. So in my day, I, I never saw a radar gun until I was in college. I mean, I, I didn't even know what one was. There, there, there was never definitely, there were some scouts at games, but they didn't have radar guns. Um, So we're talking about um, 1980, 79 to 81. Uh, When I'm in college or I'm playing in college summer leagues and you're starting to see a lot of different scouts and they had radar guns. And the people that I had conversations with, different scouts that I had conversations with, they were using at the time what was called a ray gun. And the thing about the ray gun is, and then later in professional baseball, the Baltimore Orioles used the ray gun. But the thing about the ray gun, which probably included some other guns around that time, is that gun measured the ball... As it was approaching the hitter.
2: So you can almost say as it was getting to the hitter. Um, then as technology,
1: when you listen to someone talk about how guns have improved, well they've improved in the, in the scientific method of eliminating all external factors. So the modern day gun the premise is to measure the velocity out of the pitcher's hand. And if you were just to use it as a, a science measurement, okay, it's exactly the way it should be because it takes away the altitude, the humidity, the winds, the, all the other things that come into play in the environment that would affect the way the ball,
2: um, the velocity decreased as it got to the pitcher. Uh, To the hitter, excuse me. So, while it is an advancement in technology, the thing that's
1: overlooked is the hitter's, the pitcher's job is to get the hitter out. So it's what the hitter perceives the velocity is, is way more important than what the actual velocity is. So, When you look back at the proper teachings of how to throw a baseball, and and I coined the phrase force velocity. So for me, force velocity is the sellout for velocity at all costs. Max effort, inconsistent release point, spin off the front side, pole vaulter. An example of this is the fastball is 94 miles an hour, the extension six feet, the spin rate 1600. All negative aspects of the delivery have been conveyed. Measured out of the hand, it's 94. But as the ball crosses the plate, you'll see that there's a drop-off in velocity. And the guys that have sold out for velocity, while out of the hand might be 94, there's usually a drop-off of 10 to 12 miles an hour. Now you mentioned will George, will and I had a conversation about this a couple of weeks back. um you know, will even stated at the time, if not to put words in his mouth, but he stated that there were sometimes in meetings that the stalker gun, which is also used that shows the peak velocity out of the hand, and then there's a second reading that shows it as it's nearing the batter that in some people he scouted, There was a ten to twelve mile an hour difference. But the people that actually looked like they were uh, had good rhythm and timing, and all the positives that we spoke. There was a less of a drop off, and how he thought that was important. And of course, the analytical minds in the room, you know, disagreed and and didn't want to go along with anything he stated. But that's force velocity. So in this example, um, it's it's ninety four out of the hand but it's in the neighborhood of 82 miles an hour as the ball approaches the hitter black and white, cut and dry. That's, that's what it is. All right. Whereas perceived velocity is the perception of velocity to the hitter. So it's how the, how fast the hitter thinks the pitch is because our job is to get the hitter out. Um, So 102 might look good up on the scoreboard. But if all of a sudden it's dropping down to 90 and doesn't have any late life and it's not commanded well, big league hitters going to hit it. Uh, So the result isn't necessarily what we're looking for. Now, in a little bit, I'll get into some other reasons, specifically in pro ball and, and even high school and college ball, well, why people do sell out velocity. But on the perceived velocity side, It's how the velocity is perceived by the hitter. And the goal of pitching, as I said, is to get the hitter out. So it's really about the pitcher's stuff in front of the hitter. And that ends up being far more important than the velocity of the ball out of the hand. How do we attain a, a consistent quality perceived velocity? A lot of the points that we've discussed previously. Consistent release point, force created by the kinetic chain, extension out front, everything gets to the baseball. All right. It's not max effort, but it's under control. Hand goes through the baseball out front. Consistent release point increases spin rate, late life. So there's a couple of old, uh,
0: old thoughts that you might hear. Can I ask you a question regarding that? Sure. I think the audience would benefit from it. So, you know, we talked about the radar gun. I think it's kind of evil in some regards as well. But in that instance, as you're describing, perceived as you get into definition, radar gun would be okay there because the difference between if somebody's throwing a consistent, you know, let's say 80 mile an hour change up and a 90 mile an hour fastball, that 10 mile an hour difference, regardless of where you're measuring it from is important. Correct to understand.
1: Correct. Okay. And, and, and that is one of the pitcher's tools as far as per- perceived velocity for the hitter. Um, that's, that's more about the pitch combinations and the mindset of the pitcher and, and how he executes the pitches. Understanding that if he's doing it correctly, that 90 miles an hour out of his hand only slows down about six to eight miles an hour, it gets to the hitter. So the actual, actual velocity as it approaches the hitter is, if we go with eight miles an hour or less, is 82. And then the change-up goes from 80 to
2: 72. So we still have the 10-mile-an-hour difference. Yeah. Right? But the key fact is a couple things. We talk about extension out front. If we get
1: extension out front with our release point, the classic story is David Robertson when he was with the Yankees. And I'm sure he's still pretty close to that now, but the story relates specifically to his time with the Yankees. Now, I don't know his exact height. He's probably about in the six foot to six two area. His extension out front at release point was 10 feet in the 10 feet area. Now, that's extension with his hand out front. That has nothing to do with his land foot or anything like that. That has nothing to do with his stride length. That's his hand extension out front. (coughs) Excuse me. Well, in the old days, you should hear all the time. A foot of extension is worth two to three miles an hour in perceived velocity.
2: There's an old story of Whitey Ford that um, he'd go into his windup and with his plant foot on the rubber,
1: he would slide it up three to six inches in front of the rubber and throw the pitch. And the guy interviewed him. When he told that story, he said, "But Whitey, that's uh, that's illegal. That's against the rules." And he goes, "Yeah, but not too many umpires can see from the different places on the field that I'm three to six inches in front of the rubber. They're focusing on other things." So the interviewer said, "Well, why would you do that? You know, why 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 did you think that that was beneficial for you?" And he said, "As slow as I throw, if one foot means two to three miles an hour." I'll take a half a mile, an hour to a mile. I'll take whatever I can get. Um, So here's a guy pitching in the 1950s that understood that concept. One foot in extension out front equates to a two to three mile an hour increase in perceived velocity. Now, when you watch a young pitcher throw correctly, and he has some good quality extension out front, That brings the hand more perpendicular to the ground so that he can get through the baseball, which is gonna increase his spin rate. Now, in modern technology, we know that higher spin rates can equate up to one or two miles an hour in perceived velocity. Ball spinning faster, it's gonna drop less. And to some hitters, they think the ball's rising. Physically, it's not necessarily rising. It's dropping less than the pitch with the low spin rate, or it's moving more than the pitch with the low spin rate. This creates late life that the hitters feel as if the the ball's jumping on them, or as they're putting their foot down, next thing you know, the ball is moving or exploding, you know, as far as their terminology.
2: So If we took a guy who was throwing 90 miles an hour out of their hand,
1: but he was doing things correctly and efficiently. And if we were, if we had a stalker gun, we would see what the ball was then on top of the hitter. But if we take the usual six to eight that I've witnessed for myself when I was uh, the
2: national scouting supervisor, That results in an 82 mile an hour pitch as it approaches the hitter. So that's equal to the guy throwing 94 miles an hour with the force velocity. However, the perceived velocity has an increase of about four to five miles an hour conservatively because we have
1: greater extension out front and a higher spin rate. So, that means to the hitter, the perceived velocity is 87, which is now five miles an hour faster than the guy with force velocity, even though the force velocity was 94 out of the hand, and the perceived velocity of the other pitcher out of the hand was 90. So, if you're a young pitcher, you're a father or mother of a young pitcher, and you start to understand that one... Pitcher number two we described, if all the other factors are equal, is going to be probably far more successful than pitcher number one. He's going to be able to execute and command his pitchers far better. And he's going to stay healthier, so have a longer career at whatever level he attains. Now we have a completely different perception in our mind of
2: force velocity and perceived velocity. So when a parent says, or a player says, well, the
1: radar gun said I was throwing 84, can you uh, use the radar gun for my next couple of pitches? My question is why? When our goal is to improve our perceived
2: velocity. And, you know, one of the, one of the hot hot terms Hot words that are used nowadays
1: with all the analytics and stuff is uh spin rate, and they've finally caught up a little bit in the conversation that um at least on the major major league level that um they are looking at spin rate and late life. Now
2: they define late life as spin rate, but they are looking at the spin rate as a positive. but the spin rates are positive because we understand what it causes and it
1: causes a higher perceived velocity. Um, I've I've got a couple of stories that equate to this. Um, My time reference on the first one might be a little off.
2: I would say approximately 10 years ago uh, in that neighborhood, the Toronto Blue Jays, signed two or three relief pitchers
1: that had um, recovered from Tommy John. And part of their new throwing program was that they spent time at the driveline Academy in Oregon. (coughs) Excuse me. And each of these pitchers before Tommy John threw in the low nineties, just couldn't, um, make that jump from AAA to the big leagues. So instead of going the route of working on perceived velocity, improvement of their control and command and execution of pitches, they decided to go the driveline route, which for the most part in the initial stages of the driveline academy was all about creating more force velocity. But the crazy thing that the Toronto Blue Jays learned
2: was that the guys they signed were all throwing 95 plus, 96 and up. But after a two or, th- two or three year period of being used, you know,
1: pretty extensively out of their bullpen, their velos went back down to like 92, 93. And now I wasn't there uh, witnessing it firsthand. But my logic and common sense tells me, well, they, w- they worked more on creating force velocity, didn't improve the reasons in their arm actions or their pitching deliveries that caused Tommy John in the first place. <clears throat> and they just wore themselves out over a two or three year period and their velocities came back. Now, we do remember from conversations with Vinny Perez that <clears throat> a lot of times guys recover, for Tommy, recover from Tommy John or recover from an injury And they're put on a specified um, post-rehabilitative conditioning program and a post-rehabilitative throwing program. And it's maybe the first time that they've ever done something like that. So anything you do to an unconditioned arm or athlete is going to show improvement. So it's kind of a false um, mirage, if you would say. Um, So that was interesting because for me at the time, I didn't necessarily know or realize that that could be the effect that yeah you throw hard for or harder uh, you attract the attention you sign a big league contract then you're overused out of the bullpen uh, because you're the middle reliever or or the uh, seventh inning guy if you want to say as they say nowadays and um, and then you're back to 90 through 92 93 and in a year or two you're out of the game but as I've related to everybody in the past hopefully you have a couple of million in the bank. So it was a successful operation for you as an individual.
0: And it, it's, it's a paradigm shift, right? I mean, it's, it's a, it's the same person. It's, I mean, relatively the same training over time. They're just putting the wrong things in prior, I guess they're prioritizing the wrong things. Cause I mean that, to, to me, it's a cautionary tale for pitchers and we can get into that later. Right? Cause I want to, I want to hear uh, the, the story, the other stories that relate to it, but I don't know when, People are gonna wake up to this. Um, you know, you asked a question early on, Jim, like, uh, I can't remember, oh, the the, the Giants uh, offensive line coach or the Giants trainer had asked you, how did you see that? Well, experience matters, you know, out there and, and you've had it. <clears throat> but the science that you're putting it to, this is the best marriage right now that parents could ask for or players could ask for or pro teams could ask for is hearing the information that you're providing because it's it's smart. And it's being put out there in bite-sized chunks for these people to grab onto. I just hope people are grabbing onto it.
2: Well, it, it's um,
1: it's just an environment that's been created. We talked in the past about what I what I call the bounce back effect. You see, everybody in the big leagues throwing harder. Everybody wants to throw harder. Then you get these uh, these recruiting services that are popping up left and right all over the country. And uh, if they've bought into the velocity, you know, the velocity cells then, and they're listening to stories from young college coaches and the young college coach, the first thing they're thinking about, or the first thing that's asked on a pitcher's profile is what's their velocity. Yeah, um, You know, the question, and of course, most of those guns are now the same, but the question is, is that no, nobody asks the question, What's their force velocity? What's the velocity of the hand? What's their perceived velocity? What's the velocity that crosses the plate?
0: Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you what question would you ask, and you answered that that for me. Yeah, you're right. you're right. These, you know the what's being what's being out put out there with you know. I'm glad you guys are starting uh, your group in in the New York area. I think that's phenomenal. It's needed. I'm glad you're doing what you're doing, Charlotte. And there's groups up there that are popping up all over that we're starting to get information from that are beginning to try to buck the system back to where it was and do things the right way. And you you mentioned about a college player. I I had a call this morning before our show, a pitcher that wants me to help guide their family with the recruiting process. And I I said, talk to me about the circle around you right now. And I mean, it had to be about 50 different people. Every cautionary tale that you talk about, our shows talk about, I just, I politely stopped them after like person number 25 and because they're all asking the wrong questions, I said, let's not spoil this by making me pick the sense out of all the nonsense you've heard up to this point. So let's just wipe the slate clean. Let's start fresh and let's start asking ourselves some of the simple questions. Kind of like exactly what you do in regards to pitching um, on the show. So um, you're you're right on with the the wrong questions and all these knuckleheads around these people pushing it in their heads. so but uh I digress again, sorry, I derail us sometimes, but you no, no nerve. in in fact dave as as you speak, there's even like
1: more more stories and more scenes popping in my head because it's just it's just running rampant through all our youth development right now um
2: so I had mentioned driveline and and here's um listen i I'm sure that um.
1: Driveline does some quality work and has helped out a, young, a lot of young pitchers. Um, I, knew, I know that most of their forays into Major League Baseball, professional baseball, has not ended successfully as far as individuals that have come from there. Um, I know the Phillies just got rid of all the driveline stuff because they felt as if uh, the driveline people didn't necessarily have their pitchers' well-being. Um, I think the Reds did last year too. Well the, the, the drive line guy actually got the pitching coordinator job for the Reds and that was that became chaotic and they let him go and then um there's a lot of reasons and factors. There's a lot of people involved in all those situations and stories. Um but the the perfect drive line um I don't really, I'm not even gonna call it a marketing strategy, but I do believe that a lot of people out there have seen this video, and it's a it's a pitcher he's pitching at a stretch. there's got to be 100 and 150 other players lined up uh, he's a right-handed pitcher lined up along the wall on the, on the right side outside the, uh, the the cage. He's a very large strong athlete thick, hip, thick hips, extremely limited in hip mobility it's all upper body arm and he's strong as heck. He um, goes into like an abbreviated stretch delivery, short strides it, pole vaults over the front, swings the back hip around, limited extension out front. He's a pure upper body arm thrower, max effort. Tops out at, I believe it's a hundred or 101 miles an hour. The entire room full of people erupts in cheers and high fives and like, yep. <laughs> complete absurdity of celebration. Right? Almost, almost. And I, I this is going to come off with a negative connotation, and that's not necessarily my uh, my goal. You want me to say it for you? But it's almost a cult like acceptance. It's a complete sellout to velocity. Oh. And to get back on the young man that hit 100, 101, the ball hit about 12 feet to the right and would have knocked out the Jolly Green Giant. That's how far off the plate this ball was. But he hit 100, 101. And I do know part of their philosophy, and especially for this age group, is that you have to throw with intent and all of this. And I understand that. But When you looked at the individual's throwing action, arm action, pitching delivery, his overall uh, mechanics in order to create 101 miles an hour out of his hand, none of it said there was going to be long-term success as a pitcher. That's the problem, is that the sellout in velocity has created a void where Pitching mechanics, efficiency of movement, levers in the proper position, all the things that it can contribute to consistency and execution, quality of pitches, and long-term health are being thrown out the window. That's the problem. That's the problem. Um, then on the flip side of that, and I've told this story before, but all of this is so interrelated, it's insane. My first big league spring training with the Baltimore Orioles, I'm asked to go over to the big league stadium, report to uh, Ray Miller. Of course, you got to check in with Earl Weaver first. And um, I check in, report to Earl, uh, to uh, Ray Miller. Sometimes when this happened, it was like go out and shag in left field. And you'd notice that the other two guys out in left field, left center, were Flanagan and McGregor. I was a left-handed starting pitcher. Their left-handed starting pitchers. But on this day, it was that I was supposed to go to the bullpen, and I was going to throw a bullpen. But first, Flanagan and McGregor were going to throw their bullpen. So on a normal day, I would be out there shagging, waiting for my turn. But Ray Miller said, no, I want you to sit here and watch this. I said, okay. So two different bodies, two different bills, two different ways of going at it. Flanagan and McGregor. Flanagan was probably, oh, I don't know, six, six one, six two, six foot maybe. uh, Just from his stocky build and the size of his thighs and his hips, I, I'd probably his butt. I'd probably say you know, two fifteen. I mean, this was a strong individual, and yet he's on the mound throwing his bullpen with complete rhythm and timing. At first, I'm thinking he's lo- moving in slow motion. When is he going to start to get into this? And uh, then I did remember back that when he was an amateur, I believe it was at New Mass Amherst, a lot of the scouts in the Northeast would get a little annoyed because he was a really good pitcher. And when he got in a jam, he'd start pumping the mid-90s, 96. But he'd pitch in the low 90s. And he's getting everybody out. And, we, and you know he's going to be one of the top pitchers picked. In the draft, but scouts wanted him to go after it and and show them the the gun reading so that they could report back to their bosses. Um, let's say the ill informed scout you know was uh, anxious about all of that, and so I'm watching Flanagan's bullpen, under control delivery, consistent release point, quality extension out front, force created through the connect chain is getting to the baseball, all the things that I propose to, late life on the ball because of things that we've already discussed, high perceived velocity, ball, what I say, the ball finds the glove with plus command. He's using all his tools front and back in and out, up and down, changes eye level, hitters perceptions, all the things that go into high perceived velocity. And I mean, he'd already won the Cy young. We, we, we all know he was a quality pitcher and had a long career, Um I was shocked at the beginning because I I thought of him more as this really big, strong guy. And I knew he could throw in the mid-90s. And and I was wondering why it looked like it was slow motion. And through the whole bullpen, it never sped up. Now understand, when his front foot hit and he was ready to go to the plate, that upper body accelerated and it, it was going full tilt. But it was still under control. Um... So I I could see that it didn't, it didn't shock me like uh, in disbelief, but I, it it started to fit a pattern and I started to understand something. And then Scotty McGregor got up there and now Scotty McGregor, probably six foot tall, 170 pounds, finesse control like pitcher. Um, On the Oriole ray gun that they used to use, you know, he's probably throwing 79, 82. Uh, so if you want to say mid to upper eighties for the current day, um, he'll throw the fastball that sinks away. It's got some tail on it, would sink. He'll throw the fastball in on the hand. he'll tease you with a slow t- tantalizing curveball. ball. He'll back it up with a nice change up, same action as his fastball. Not afraid to pit in, in, pitch inside to uh righties, even though he's throwing mid eighties. But the thing that shocked me is I thought Flanagan was moving in slow motion. This guy was all rhythm and timing, hands overhead in the wind up, down, rhythm, timing, perfect, consistent release point, under control. And then I saw one of his fastballs absolutely explode into the catcher's glove. And I thought, how did he do that? That's impossible. Because at my young age, yeah, Nolan Ryan can do that. Guys that throw hard can do that. I can understand that Flanagan can do that. How did he do that? And the pitch was like 85, 82 to 85 miles an hour. And I just stood there in amazement, and I watched the rest of his bullpen. And then it started coming to me. And then after they were done, I get up to throw my bullpen with Ray Miller. And he asked me a couple of questions. And I was honest. I said, uh, you know, Flanagan was what I expected, but it shocked me. Um, I mean, both of their commands was like off the charts with their fastball command. I said, but it shocked me on how McGregor had the ball explode with late life on the batter. It, it just finds the glove. And Ray Miller said, simply said, that's what a consistent release point does. And then the wheels started churning. That's what perceived velocity is. Um, that's something that's totally um, misinterpreted nowadays. I would say me watching those bullpen was was the start of my mind thinking about all the things that I include in in what I call triple spin and and some of the things that I teach, you know now. Um, and the and the importance of this is that, We can take it a step further. Think of our modern game nowadays for uh, for young pitchers. When uh, college coaches are looking for velocity, especially the you know the major college coaches, uh, a lot of times in these major Division One schools in the, in the big conferences, it's not like they have the ability to get out and watch these kids pitch a lot. You know, especially in, in live games. So the showcase environment has started to take over, uh, whether it be in college or in in pro ball. If I can send a bunch of my scouts on a on a weekend when um, nothing else is going on in the fall, and I can see the top 150 pitchers in the country, so to speak, right I'm going to save money and uh, we're going to see everybody under one roof and compare them and make a decision. Well, the problem with that is that we now have what I call game, real game perceived velocity versus showcase type environment, which is all about force velocity. If I go to the perfect game in Jupiter, the national, you know, wood bat championships, and I'm lighting up the gun at 97, I'm definitely on the radar, even if nobody even knew me before that. And I'll be honest with you, you know, the mad chaotic scene of 200 professional scouts riding around in golf carts, running like crazy. And I was one of them because, you know, I I wasn't the boss. I worked for other people. And yeah, it's good to see them. It's good to see them. It's good to see them in that environment. It's good to see them trying to get some of the top hitters in the country out, but it doesn't tell you all the things that are going to be needed to be a quality pitcher down the road. Now, because of the bounce back effect, if you're looking to be a relief pitcher in the big leagues and throw an inning or two, yeah, that's what the showcase environment has created.
0: Now, I don't that's know. How they, throw. they throw two innings on a Friday, two on a Saturday. You're right. It's, it's an environment to create relievers. Right. That's a good point.
1: So now, I don't have the dates perfect here,
2: but if you were to, on your own, go back and look at the creation of the Perfect Game Association, which was originally started for
1: outstanding reasons. It was a way in which... Young ball players in South Dakota and Iowa in different places that aren't heavily scouted could come and get scouted by college or professional scouts,
0: yeah, the intense phenomenal
1: outstanding then it blossomed now currently it's not owned by the original owner it's blossomed into on the on the scouting circuit it's we're going to get together in um perfect game, Jupiter in the fall, and it's the uh, culmination of the scouting
2: season, and we're going to see all this, but it's really created, and and then you wonder, so my
1: thing about the dates is, think of the date where um, I I did research on this and, and made a couple of posts about it, off the top of my head, I forget the exact date. Maybe 94, 95, but I could be incorrect. And now, look at the development of pitching in professional baseball since then. Now there's other factors because the pitch counts because they don't want people to get hurt because there's so much money invested in some of these minor league pitchers. that has to do with it also. But the environment that was created by showcase baseball is now the environment of what happens in Major League Baseball. That's the bounce back effect. Initially in Major League Baseball, there's a quest for velocity. All right, we got the radar guns up on the scoreboard. We got the fans oohing and on. We got the video clips on YouTube of the driveline guy or, or, or the, the pitch ninja guy giving you highlights of nasty pitches in the big leagues. And everybody wants to replicate that. And that goes all the way down to the uh, grassroots of development of youth baseball players Then they come up within the showcase environment, throw the ball an inning or two, you know, three or four times a week. And now all of a sudden, the talent pool that scouts get to pick with, pick from, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And this is something that I stated uh, to my coworkers over, well, at least 15 years ago, the self-fulfilling prophecy. The self-fulfilling prophecy of analytics. Not only are you saying, remember when analytics, when people would think of quote unquote money ball, this was a way for Billy Bean to fill in the gaps because he didn't have the money to go out and purchase high end free agency. So he needed a first baseman. He couldn't afford Jason Giambi anymore. How do I fill in the gap? How do I fill in the gap? Now I'm not going to be able to get a superstar. So what are the other factors that will help me make a quality baseball team? Who's who's a quality baseball player based on other things besides uh, home runs and RBIs and batting average? And and he did it successfully. But once analytics takes a hold. um, As I said, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, because if we're only scouting certain types of people, then we're only going to develop certain types of people. The people that check the analytic boxes. If in player development, if player development is handed over to the analytics, then we're only developing certain people that check the boxes or we're taking other people and we're changing them in order for them to check the boxes. (laughs) Now, you're a young ball player and you're an A-ball and you're seeing everyone who gets promoted for specific reasons and your thought process is because they throw harder, because they have a higher spin rate, whatever, even though the guy's walking almost two guys an inning. All right. What am I going to do? Well, I want to get to the big leagues. I want to make more money. I'm going to start checking the boxes. And now we get to the big leagues, and that's what's happening. And now you have general managers basically deciding they're not going to spend money on starting pitching. And we're going to throw starting pitchers four innings. If we get five, we're, we're, we're thankful. And we're going to basically turn it over to the bullpen. And then you have all the guys from the showcase environment pitching an inning or two, and we get through the game. And then we're going to stockpile as many of these replacement type players of AAA and rotate them in and out of our bullpen. And this is the way the game's played. But it all started that way long ago, all right, with this bounce back effect. And I'm going to give you an example of it, all right, before I get back to the game and the showcase. So one day there was a left-handed pitcher out in Southern California up in the in the West Valley. And uh, he had an older brother that was pitching at the time, AA. He was a left-handed pitcher. He was very good, very good stuff. Um, probably only 5'11", but put together nicely, threw the ball very well. Well, he missed the start in his high school season. So his, his acting advisor, who uh, later went on to make a name for himself in, with throwing programs and long toss programs, his active advisor decided that he didn't want his name to uh, slip out of the loop here for too long. So he organized a, uh, a training session, a throwing session. So a lot of scouts had attended this throwing session. Uh, it was uh, midweek to where not a lot of other stuff was going on. So if you were in the um, California area, if you were out West, it's kind of a day off for you. So you're going to go watch it. Uh, also, if you watch it, you can see whether he's ready to pitch in a game and maybe bring some of your supervisors in and, and stuff. I happened to be in the area. So I uh, decided to attend. And uh, this guy went through his throwing program and the whole thing. During the whole training session, the advisor stood right next to him, right? Telling him what to do. Uh,
0: that's how it happens in the game, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, he finally got, got up on the mound, and, and I walked over to the dugout and sat down. And the pitcher's father was in the dugout. Uh, very nice man. And he, uh, after a couple of minutes, he said, uh, excuse me, Mr. Rooney, um, may I ask why you're not
2: out behind the mound with the rest of the scouts? And I said, yes, yeah, that's – I said, the reason I'm not out there is
1: because I, I just watch your – I'm here to make sure that your son is healthy. I just watched him go through a throwing program and the whole thing. He's healthy. I have no worries about that. Um, but I didn't, like, fly to California today to sit and watch an adult tell your son every single thing he's supposed to do. Because during the bullpen session, which they threw out, you know, on the field – to a catcher, the advisors stood behind him and said, "Okay, throw a fastball. All right, throw a fastball alone away. All right, throw a fastball in. Okay, don't do this. Okay, got to create more force. Okay, you got to be a little quicker. Right, telling him every single thing he was supposed to do." And I said to the de- to the dad, um, "If he was out there on the mound showing me what he can do." and how he can process information and how he can make individual adjustments from a pitch-to-pitch pitch, um, sequence, I'd probably be standing out there to see what's going through his head, to see what he feels, to see how he's making adjustments. But when all of that is being told to him by his advisor, all they really need to know, he's healthy, and I'll come back to, you know, one of the, one of the games that he's pitching and when he's out there on the mound trying to do his thing. So getting back to the uh, showcase environment, a lot of times that's what you see occurring. You know, you understand the, uh, if, if I can use the word maybe optics here, the young player has decided to go the route of this showcase because he's looking for exposure and he's looking for people. Um, that are decision makers and are higher ups in the collegiate or professional scouting ranks. He's there to show what he can do. And now he's in a showcase game, and one of the coaches on the sideline is calling all the pitches. One of the coaches on the sideline is calling all the pickoffs. One of the coaches on the sideline is telling him when to slide step, when to step off. Even if the coach is well-versed on all the tools a pitcher should use to control the running game, the fact that the coach is making this decision when to do all that is not showing me or anybody in the know-how the young pitcher's ability to
0: process and do that all on his own you know, a side delusion that's taking place at those games as well. It doesn't matter what the ball is. These coaches think that they're being scouted, that they think they're in some Saturday afternoon special where they're coaching some game in the middle of nowhere and they're going to get plucked out and, you know, asked by the New York Mets to take over their managerial role next year or come in as a scout because they, it's – you think I'm kidding. I I went from the college game – And now I'm helping out with grassroots, you know, kind of like uh, uh, what what you're doing with your son. And I am appalled by the conversations, the delusional conversations that are going on. So some of it, they think they know what they're doing. Others think that they're on display, not the kids. Yeah. And this is
1: true because I know for a fact
2: that if we go back a few years, there was a young high school pitcher. being coached by his dad the dad was not previ- as, as the pitching coach the dad was not previously
1: a coach on this high school team staff the son was pretty darn good and it looked like he was going to go in the first round of the amateur draft next thing you know the dad's the pitching coach dad was a former big league not excuse me a former minor league pitcher i believe pitched up to double a And after the son was drafted, the dad basically was there coaching him, campaigning all the professional teams to give him a job. And for a short period of time, the team that drafted him gave him a rookie ball pitching coach job. So once again, the bounce back effect. (laughs) So, so, basically in this, in this showcase environment, all right, we got the showcase. You're going to see a lot of forced velocity, a lot of max effort, below average command and control, inconsistent release point and extension, limited ability to throw strikes with secondary pitches, usually a two-pitch guy, high number of pitches per inning, perceived velo is less. And then we go to a real game, all right, a real game where, that starting pitcher is probably going to throw, you know, 6 or 7 innings hopefully. You hope, right? Right. And he goes into the real game and he realizes he's his his main job is to throw hitters timing and rhythm off. Change speeds, command the baseball, three get guys out in three pitches or less, throw first pitch strikes, induce weak contact. Weak contact limits power numbers limits base runners, not a lot of walks, not a lot of hit by pitches, all accomplished with under control delivery and all the things we talk about consistent release point, high spin rate, increased extension, high perceived velocity, less pitches for inning. If possible, we want to develop our young pitchers to be the guy that pitches in the real life games under those uh, those characteristics. Um and as I mentioned earlier, not, not to try to, you know, we're not talking about a satanic cult here or anything like that. We're just talking about the cult of velocity.
2: Well, there's one thing that's very, very easy to see in the cult of velocity, especially if it starts at a young age. We are rewarding performance. Okay, So. Based on prior research
1: that we've brought up as far as in overall education of of young children. There's the reward performance or reward effort or reward the process. And as we've known before, we've discussed it. If we reward performance, all of a sudden that player basically gets addicted to the gun and what's my velocity all the other stuff get goes out the window everything that could be beneficial for his long-term development goes out the window i've seen it even in rehab pitchers coming back from tommy john coming back from different injuries and they back up on the mound instead of be thankful and grateful that they're back up on the mound and they're pain-free and they're going to move forward with their development they get off the mound after a bullpen session and the first thing they ask is, what was my velocity? And of course, the people that are there are, let's say, uh, less than knowledgeable and they have the radar gun, which is one of the modern radar guns that takes the velocity out of the hand. Now, we're not talking about major leagues here, we're not talking about people that have daily access to all the other uh, analytics and technology that will give a spin rate and extension and all the other things. It's basically the guy is addicted to velocity. So force velocity becomes the goal. Once force velocity becomes the goal, everything else is out the window. And this is even in people that are coming back from an injury. This is this is how deeply this addiction is now grained Within our baseball society. A young man, just think about the Toronto relievers. Three of them get big league contracts after coming back from Tommy John because instead of throwing 92 93, they're now throwing 95 97. Right? This is where this addiction goes. They don't improve their deliveries, they don't improve any of the things that led to the Tommy Johns in the first place. So after a two-year, three-year period, they're out of Major League Baseball, right? So think of yourself as a high school player coming back from an injury. And if you sell out for the force velocity, yeah, you know what? You might you might all of a sudden hold it together for two, three years and dominate when you're a senior in high school. And all the guys that are coming with the radar guns looking for force velocity, uh, and you, you may get drafted or things may work out for you. And then after that, um, you know, it's kind of a crapshoot what's going to happen because we haven't learned any of the thing. <clears throat> the other part that happens is that if, if, if we don't reward the player being part of the process, we don't reward his effort and his focus. If there is a bump in the road, like an injury, and he's been so performance related, addicted to that gun. It's going to be very difficult at the start of that rehab and the start of those throwing programs, post rehab throwing programs, because he doesn't have any feel for what he's doing. He's not established any benchmarks or any verbal cues or visual cues. So even when he looks at his video and different things, it's going to be hard information for him to process. Um, the other part is that the person that is involved in the process, the effort, and the focus on that task of executing the next pitch properly. He learns how to make adjustments. He learns to feel what he's doing. Positives in all kinds of ways that we've discussed before. The difficulty that we have in our current environment is that scouts and coaches at all levels have bought into the cult of velocity and the bounce back effect is in, is in full gear. Um, Recording peak velos does not differentiate fourth velo from perceived velo. I mean, you listen to that uh, many, many times over from a whole bunch of old scouts or coworkers that I've had. Uh, As I stated earlier, even Will George, you know, has stated that the the things that he sees in, in his current scouting environment, where even when he tries to bring up a conversation of the difference between the two, it's, it's labeled non-important. Um, so this is the environment we've created. Uh, hopefully, we don't live and die by it so that we um, continue to increase Dr. Ahmad in New York, as Vinny brought up, you know, 30 Tommy Johns a month. Uh, hopefully, we somewhere along the line, this, uh, this loop is broken so that we can get back to some sanity as far as in youth development, because the way it's headed right now, um, sad to say that we're looking at 40 to 50 Tommy Johns a month um, under our current conditions. Uh, in closing, I have one last story that relates to a lot of what we've just
2: discussed. So I know a young man, he's recovering from Tommy John and, uh,
1: just at the point when we kind of broke him of his addiction to the gun, and just when he started to feel what he was doing, and he's back up on the mound, uh, he's probably uh, 10 to 12 months in in his recovery period. We had stated that the goal was to be 18 months to be back up on the mound and be able to take your normal turn in your high school game and do your thing. And uh, he's a freshman but he's very talented. So of course the varsity coach wants him on his team. So this young man has tried to make changes in in his thought process and and his work and how to do things the, the proper way. So he's trying to, you know, get himself out of the cult of velo and move into the area of perceived velocity and doing things efficiently and correctly. And, uh, really wants to play for his high school club he's, high school team has had a pretty good success rate however you look at um high school coach's ability to develop pitchers and while he's had some successful pitchers there's a fair share of injured pitchers and and um and uh throwing problems arm problems arm injuries so the young man goes back into the process and uh, after his first week, he texts me, he wants me to do this. He wants me to do that. And I've tried to say to him, listen, you know, you it's your decision that you want to go and make a good impression and be part of this program. The fact that the head coach has told you it's his way or the highway. And now he's forcing you to do things, um, that you're not ready to do. Um, Yes, I, I understand your problem, and I'll still help you. Let's work on it to where we can try to come up with some type of thing that you're comfortable with, and and maybe the, the coach sees the light as far as in your individual case, that you're not trying to rebuff or go against anything he says. You're just trying to do – your your goal is to pitch in the spring for him on a consistent basis. Um. But the goal is to be ready to do that. So setbacks at this stage of the game are going to be negatives as far as that being accomplished. So here's, a, here's an example of a young man turning the corner after having a major injury, still being addicted to velo and a member of the cult. And he turns the corner and he starts seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And then he's put back into that environment. Where an adult, a head coach, or an advisor, whoever it would be, it happens in all over, is telling them what to do. And the young man knows that it is contrary to what he should be doing. But that's the world we live in. And that's the reason, uh, to be honest, Dave, that's the reason why, uh, even though we met in Myrtle Beach, I was introduced to you by uh, some people that I respect highly. But that's the reason that each week, I spend the time researching and we do this podcast because I see these situations happen to young ballplayers on a continual basis. And somewhere along the line, the, the, that insanity has to stop.
0: Oh, yeah. we, we share a common bond in many areas, but that's, that is a, a huge one that we both probably wake up every morning and start, we, we start swinging uh, to try to fix that problem. It's, you know, you, you, you brought up, you brought up, uh, you, you know, we talk about the point of not training athletes physically like adults, the situation that that young man in, that's an emotional uh, decision, that's a mature decision, however you want to phrase it, but that's something emotionally that an adult would handle, not a teenage boy. Um, so the, the we are, our authority figures are putting these kids in bad situations physically. But the one you're describing right there, it is, it is his physical being. But emotionally, that kid shouldn't be handling this situation right now. He shouldn't be in the, be in the middle of it. No, he's 14 years old. Yeah, there's, um, there's no way.
1: You know, th- this is going to sound extreme, okay? But because of my travels, uh, I joke with my wife that um, before we were married, I lived in 56 different places in five different countries and all basically due to baseball. Um, but when you, when you go to, um, um, I'm not even gonna say third world countries, but when you, when you go to countries that you say, you see the day-to-day stress is, uh, pretty unbelievable. Um, my father used to say to me, um, you'll, you'll know who your real friends are when survival knocks on the door meaning when the tough times occur, or, um, he called it survival. Um, and, uh, you know, there was times that I was in Venezuela coaching in winter ball. And one Sunday I gave him a call and I said, Dad, you know, what's unbelievable is, you, you know, you don't really know this when you're living in the States, but there's some people down here that survival knocks on our door each meal. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty rough. Um, so, the thing you see in that environment, okay, and you know, I'm not a scientist in in this area of nature or 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 uh, development or anything like that, but when human beings are placed in extremely stressful environments from what I've witnessed, um they they physically mature much earlier. And then they end up having uh, shorter uh, lifespans. So think of all the stress physically, emotionally, intellectually, that you're placing on a 14-year-old. The negative effects on his overall life, forget
0: about just baseball, are significant. Are significant. You You could term that just like you called forced velocity. That's forced stress in our society.
1: Yes. Yes. And and as adults, when we move into middle age and we and we start to age and age starts to catch up with us a little bit, we we go to our doctors. We we try preventive medicine and holistic medicine. We 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 try to change our diets. We try to change our habits. Everybody involved that you go to see for their uh, for their knowledge and their advice tells you it's all about stress. It's all about stress. Um, Whether it's the training stress that you put up on yourself when you were younger to become a professional athlete, it catches up with you when you get older, right? Uh, It's not just about injury. It's about stress and how you handle stress, chronic stress, acute stress, accumulation of stress. And yet, we as adults in our current society is continually placing young children young athletes, young adults, into stressful environments, whether they're physical, whether it's throwing workloads or other different things, or it's emotional, like making these type of decisions. And on a whole, they're ju- it's just overall negative. There's no way around it.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm i with you on that 100%. You, you brought up a point earlier where you talked about, and I I, don't, I know – we're, we're kind of closing, but I want to get your opinion on this because so I think it's an eye opener for parents. If they don't see it in front of their face, maybe they're, they're Maybe it's because they're looking for a long term cash buy-in on their child's arm. But we see the, uh, well, the emphasis on, as you said, these, the showcases, the max velo, it's producing two inning pitchers and two inning pitchers don't make as much as seven inning pitchers and Major League Baseball is paying these seven-inning pitchers or the ones that used to be the Max Scherzers of the world an exorbitant amount of money. Um, if parents want to take a look at the, the way that the mark, the market correction happened in the NFL with running backs way back when, take a look at what running backs are, gonna, are being paid right now as opposed to the other positions. Um, they're, they're not being paid a lot of money because um, there was a market correction there, and I believe it was intentional. I mean, do you think it's an, an intentional market of correction with pitchers right now? They don't want to pay them that amount of money. I mean, that's gosh, they're paying two hundred million dollars for guys not to pitch, and um, you know it's much cheaper, as you said, to pay a two inning guy.
1: Exactly. And in, in fact, if if analytic models are to be completely followed and overtake uh, professional baseball, um, you're not going to have starting pitchers. Yeah, you're not going to have starting pitchers, and what they'll do is. It'll be in ways that you don't see it coming, like expanded rosters.
0: Yeah. See? We're shuffling guys up and down, right? Like they do. So,
2: so we already added
1: uh, an extra man, right? Especially in the, in the big leagues with, uh, with double headers and stuff that they can float a guy back and forth. and So that, that slowly started to occur. And then you start seeing um, teams that are
2: carrying – Thirteen pitchers. Um, so if we go through, if we go through a four a four day rotation, four days in a row, we use four pitchers. The back end of that game, there's going to be at least two guys that are used twice. So that
1: goes from sixteen down to 14 or maybe a third guy that's down to 13. Well, we just navigated through four days in this new, uh, new phase of baseball where we've gone through four days with four pitchers and it's taken up our 13, our 13 man pitching staff. So we then rotate two of those guys back to AAA and bring two of the other guys up. And then We, oh, we don't have a fifth starter, so we have a bullpen day. And now we've just covered how do we get through
2: the week. I think
0: they were trying to do that with utility players as well. And it it hasn't worked out as well where they just – anybody can play anywhere. They're still doing it a little bit. But I think they were trying to do away with that, you know, that primetime shortstop, that primetime center fielder, third baseman, the guys that are making big money. Um, Yeah.
1: They'll do They'll do anything to reduce costs. Okay. It starts with, it starts with firing scouts. Uh, it starts with, uh, uh, decreasing the amount of people involved in development. Now they'll increase their analytics staffs. Okay. Because those are people that the front office definitely has full control over no matter what. Um, you know, you see it, you see the type of managers that are in the game. That's why the other day somebody asked me, one of my young clients came to me and said, uh, coach Jim, who, who are you going to root for now? And I said, well, my, uh, my son Seamus was rooting for the Braves. So then the Braves lost. So we had a conversation the other night and his mom said, Seamus, who are we going to root for now? And of course, his mom's an old Cub fan. And, uh, nowadays I'm more of a fan of individuals than necessarily a team. And, uh, but, you know, but my dad's Yankees aren't in it. So I was like, uh So my wife said, I'm going to root for the Orioles. So I said, "Okay, I can understand that. I'm an old Oriole. And uh, yeah, if you want to do that, Seamus. And then the Orioles lost. And so then my wife, because we met out in in Scottsdale and Phoenix uh, area, she said, well, I guess we can root for the Diamondbacks. And Diamondbacks beat the Dodgers. okay. And then I finally said, well, I'm rooting for a Texas Ranger Philadelphia Phillies World
2: Series. And the question was, why? And I said, well, they're run by baseball people. Um, I don't know the exact details. I don't remember it. But I
1: do remember when the San Francisco Giants went analytics and Bochy was out. And now Bochy's the manager of Texas Rangers. I do know for years the Texas Rangers were were led by um, John Daniels, which was a, a... analytic bend to it twist. And now, uh, he's gone. And, um, the old pitcher who, even though he went to Yale, uh, Chris Young.
0: Oh, Chris Young. Yeah, Princeton. He was Princeton basketball player. Oh, Princeton. Yes.
1: Okay. Um, there was a stat that came out the other day. If you were to include the Braves, the Phillies, Braves, and Texas Rangers, their big league coaching staff, average age, is sixty eight. Um, so it's people with uh, a lot of experience, and they're all baseball guys. Um, I, I I couldn't go down a list of exactly who it was, but I'm going to guess that there's not um there's not an assistant hitting coach that was trained at uh, driveline to create uh, you know greater exit velos sitting in that dugout, telling the hitters what to do. <laughs> now, they might be behind scenes and stuff like that, but for the most part, those three organizations are run by baseball people, and the average age of the coaching staff is just proof of it and the way their GMs uh, handle themselves. Remember, the Phillies went with an analytics guy, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and then they fired him, and then they brought in um, – is, is Dombrowski there now?
0: Yeah, he's a Phillies GM.
1: Okay, so you got Dombrowski and you got Rob Thompson, lifelong
0: baseball people. We had uh, Larry Bowe was on the show yesterday. He's as he's a special assistant to Dombrowski. Um, I mean, there's a toughness about them too. That's just fun to watch. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that's who I'm rooting for. Who wins? Uh, you know,
1: either either one. But th- those are the guys I'm rooting for because um, while I've I've talked in the past that sometimes baseball people have brought some of this. Uh, analytics and some of these problems upon themselves, uh, and that's an, another story or another episode in itself. Um, I'm still going to stick with the guys. And if that, if that, if that leans me to have Bochi win, I'll take that because, uh, while he was still alive, I became very good friends with Dick Tidrow, who worked closely with Bochi and Brian Sabian in San Francisco during their world series years. And Dick was, uh, Sparky Lyle's roommate, I've also worked with Sparky Lyle, and Dick was a a fabulous individual. Always extremely helpful. We had great conversations about pitching. So if I can tie Dick Dick Tidrow in here and hope for Bochy to win another World Series, I'll go that route.
0: No, I think it's – I'm I'm with you on that. They've been fun to watch. Uh, Texas jumping out. I mean, Texas has had everything against them too. They've been on the road since September. And no complaints. They just come out and play. And love the kid in left field, Carter. I love his story about how he was recruited, um, signed, didn't play travel, baseball, never on a perfect game, Uh, leaderboard, uh, recruiting list, prospect list in his state of Tennessee, not even listed in his region. Baseball America didn't have him listed in the top 500. Um, And here he is starting in left field, I believe, for the Texas Rangers on their way to the World Series, possibly at the ripe old age of 20, 21. How does that happen? That's phenomenal. Bird dog. You know
1: what, David? It's it's similar. To my first year as coordinator, um, we took uh, Brewers took Mark Rogers, right-handed high school pitcher out of a little little town in Maine, with the first pick, and with the second pick they took Giovanni Gallardo, out of a high school outside of Fort Worth, I believe, or in Fort Worth, Texas, and um, Giovanni's family's from Mexico, I, I think, outside of Mexico City, and. Uh, Scouts were they were a little concerned because they didn't think when they went to see Giovanni every time pitch for his high school team that he was extremely focused and at some times in the fourth inning he started throwing knuckleballs. This is the the story I never saw it because I was working as the pitching coordinator at the time, but when I got to meet both of them in uh, in mini camp in Phoenix, I mean it was obvious. You know, Giovanni Gallardo was was pretty advanced and pretty special. Mark Rogers was was a stud athlete with an insane arm. Um, Could have went to University of Miami to play baseball, Duke to play soccer, or Harvard to play hockey. Uh, He was a right defenseman, so the the torque that he thought was uh, beneficial in his throwing mechanism led him to throw about a foot and a half across his body. But the, the point was, Gallardo, after... He, he was not on any of those lists that you just went over. And a story that comes to mind is baseball America contacts me at the end of their first, you know, half, you know, half season, summer season in rookie ball in Phoenix, uh, complex ball. And the writer says, uh, he wants to go down the list and he wants to talk about, uh, Mark Rogers. And I said, uh, Yeah, yeah, we're doing this, everything's working, everything's positive. Great, great kid. You know, we're working on this, we're doing that whole thing. And he goes, Jim, thank you so much for your time. And I said, uh, excuse me one second, if if you're talking about one of the some of the top pitching prospects in baseball right now, you have to talk about Giovanni Gallardo. This guy, he goes, Oh, really? He goes, yeah, I, I know his name, but, you know, he's not on any of these lists. And I said, well, if you want to make a name for yourself, you put him on your list. He never was in the top 100 or anything. And then the season before he went to the big leagues, he dominated. I mean, dominated. And, and I knew he was going to be in the big leagues the next year. Uh, it took a little bit longer, even though... If, he went from high school to the big leagues in, in, I think, three, three
2: and a half years, which is pretty pretty outstanding. But Giovanni Gallardo, in his second year, I'm going to say his second year in the big leagues, was the ace of that staff
1: for the next five years. And until just before his promotion, he was never in anybody's top 10 or top 100 or anything, any prospect list that's when you start to see that sometimes there's people out there that they have no idea what they're looking at. They're just looking at other people's lists. Oh yeah, They lack self-reliance. They're... Yeah, that's... I mean, just just think of the story of the the, the guy that uh, hacked into the computer. He, he got uh, indicted for that. If he's so good, at, and he's a director of scouting, I, I think it was the Cardinals, Astros, or vice versa, or whatever. But if you're so good at what you're doing, and you have vision, and you understand what you're looking at, why do you have to look at anybody else's list? Yeah, now, I'm going to save this for next week. But I have an extremely funny story along those lines of what popped up many, many years ago when I was scouting in Florida. And I'll uh, relay that to the audience next week.
0: Yeah, I think that's, good. that's a good way to wrap. We, we had a full show today. Great, great episode today. The cult of velocity. I like that, that catchphrase. We're going to put it out there. For people to start paying attention to uh, great great insight great research great delivery and you know today's episode we've kept you over 90 minutes so you threw a complete game nine inning there's going to be no market correction on your value uh, nine inning plus the extra innings you threw and then you went down and threw a bullpen side just for the heck of it but uh, great show today episode 319 today toe the rubber with jim rooney real Voices of the game productions we thank you for your support out there make sure you let I Heart Radio. No, they made the right selection with that. Have a great day. We've got a full end of the week lineup. Hope you tune in. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jim.
2: Thank you, Dave. Talk to everybody next week.